Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And I'm joined today, as usual, by our General Manager, Tony Anderson. Hey, Tony. Good morning. And I'm also really excited for today's podcast because we have a very special guest. We recently welcomed a new director to our board, Dave Schweitzer. He was appointed to fill the vacancy on our board following the passing of Rick Denowith. And he's here with us to tell us a little more about himself and what he will be contributing to the Cherryland Board. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. So before we get to that, Dave, Tony, um, maybe you can just remind our listeners about the process our board went through when they were trying to fill this vacancy. Yep. Per our bylaws, uh, the board took applications, and we received 27 applications from the Cherryland membership. You have to be a member to be on the board, of course. And uh, those 27 applications were narrowed down to five or six uh, people who had in-person interviews with the board. I wasn't in the room. It's totally the board's decision to go through that process and make a decision, and they did yeah. and, and made a very good one. And spent quite a bit of time with it. That was what impressed me is it really yes. was, a, I think, a, a rigorous process to find mm-hmm. the right the right fit for the board at that moment. Absolutely. So, so on that note, Dave, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit why you were interested in serving on Cherryland's board? It's been a long time coming. I actually ran for the board my gosh, has to be maybe 15 years ago, and went through the petition process and didn't turn out too well, and kind of put it on the back burner. And then back in 07, when Rick was appointed, I was part of that process as well. Um, and so I've always had an interest in joining the board, and it's been a long time coming. And I think it stems just from my background and my my, my father's uh employment at a utility in, in Detroit. So, how, how long have you, well, first of all, how long have you lived in the Grand Traverse area? We've been here since 1994. And so, always on co-op lines? Yes. Okay. We live in the Holiday Hills area, okay. and back at that time, we were the only, there were three houses on our street. It's Ground Pine Trail, and now there's got to be at least 30 houses, and those are all Cherryland. What prompted the first run 15 years ago, and why did it end up on the back burner? Actually, I believe it was John Olson, who was a current board member, who asked me to run. And I can't remember if he was on the board at that time or not. He probably was. He's he's been on about that long. Yeah. And suggested that I do it uh, for our area. I can't remember if it was Williamsburg or Acme area or that. It was not the general. And... I was going up against a pretty well-known person. I can't remember who it was back then. Mm-hmm. But um, after that, things happened. My girls were getting older, very involved with sports, and there was just a lot of time sink. I was teaching at the college, and and at this point in time, it, it just became more appropriate for me, and it was time. So you own your own investment firm, and you've been in the investment industry for over 30 years. What do you Tell us about how your professional background, tell us more about that, and also how you think it will inform your decision-making as a board member. Well, I've been in the business for a long time and have worn many hats. I started my, my uh, career in Grand Rapids uh, at a local brokerage firm called First of Michigan Corporation. And... My wife and I, Deb, we lived in Grand Rapids for about eight years from 1986 to 1994 before we moved up here. And I was head of fixed income trading. Uh, we did a lot of uh, retirement planning, uh, that sort of thing. 
when I was in Grand Rapids, I headed up the municipal bond trading desk. In the mid-90s, there were tons of bank consolidations, and so I, uh, the bank that I was working for, Michigan National, got bought out and gave me a good severance at that time, and my wife and I, like everybody else in Traverse City uh, that has moved here, we vacationed here and thought, boy, we'd love to live here, and that was our chance because I got a good severance. My wife was in the legal business, and we... Uh, um, we just had a six-year-old, six-month-old daughter, and we thought now is the time. If we're going to move, we're going to do it now. So it was the right time to make the move. So given all that, then how, how do you think that background will inform you as a board member? I am a chartered financial analyst as well, and that's a very rigorous three-year program. Um, it involves a lot of analytical analyzing balance sheets and income statements and those sort of things. Uh, and I hope I can bring that analytical experience to the board. Um, I tend to look at things with a laser focus, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm pretty amazed at how much is involved in this in this board uh, position. Uh, have, have you looked at our balance sheet yet with a laser focus? Or <laughs> well, I'm waiting for the new report to come out. Okay. <laughs> but I was uh, Tony sent me a, a PDF the other day that. It had over 100 acronyms on it, and I was blown away by how many different things there are. And I'm going to a director's uh, training in, in Traverse City next week at the Park Place, and there's a lot more involved. I'm humbled by how much I have to learn and, and digest. So That's a pretty common response from new board members that I've encountered over the years. Mm-hmm. It's just such a complicated industry, and whether whether we're talking about our finances, the kind of regulatory structures we operate within, the political structures we operate within, the the, the technological nature of the things we do, it's just a really complicated industry, which is fun. Because the great thing, Dave, is that four years from now, you're still going to be like, man, there's so much to learn. That's one of the things I love about it is I never, I'm not afraid I'm going to get to the end of the opportunity to learn new things. So. Well, and it seems like there's so much going on in the industry right now that, um, a lot of changes on the regulatory side. Absolutely. So, well, speaking speaking of changes and what's going on, and, and maybe Tony, you can jump in on this too. But what what do you view as some of the the biggest opportunities um, facing the industry right now? The biggest opportunities is well, I don't know if it's an opportunity, but the biggest what we have going forward is what is the regulatory environment going to be? We've had eight years of pretty much we n knew what the regulatory environment was under the previous administration. Now we have a totally new administration that's going to be different, if I can put air quotes around that, and we don't know how different it, it's going to be. And so that's the biggest opportunity slash challenges. I Uncertainty. I, and we've talked yeah, about that yeah, a lot on this yeah, podcast, I'm, right? Did it I'm hesitating a lot because we just don't know how crazy or how normal it, it's going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my standard response is just remain calm. You know, power plants are still going <clears> to <throat> exist. The ones that are scheduled for closing are still going to close. But after that, what's going to happen? You know, the clean power plans at the Supreme Court. We got a new justice about to be appointed. We got pipelines that really don't affect us, but it's energy, it's infrastructure, it's it's going to consume part of our world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, well, just this morning, uh, the new administration put out a blanket 
executive order to delay all new regulations that have been imposed in the last 60 days, mm -hmm. um, delay them an additional 60 days. And in my industry, that's a really, really big deal. We are faced with a, a huge regulation coming up in April, and so that would have changed the way we've done business, and we've been uh, our lobbying group in, in our industry uh, has, has really tried to delay this new rule coming, and I don't want to go into detail about that. But I'm very familiar with how these regulations affect all of us. You know, it's not just in D.C. where there's politicians talking, but it affects us here on the ground. So Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, and as we were kind of hinting at, like there's this this kind of balance between maybe there may be regulations we don't even like, but in some ways having the certainty of knowing what we have to prepare for is just as important as having the regulation we want. Exactly. That's so a good way to put it. We have this mm -hmm. challenge now of having the opportunity to maybe get some regulations that might be better for our business in some ways, but still also having to deal with the uncertainty that comes with administration change. So that's, yep. that's a challenging time for all types of industries. Mm -hmm. So along those lines, any other challenges that you see on the radar, either of you, that are, you're kind of watching out for and thinking about as you walk into the officer boardroom? My challenges personally coming on the board are just to learn and to digest and be a sponge and try to disseminate what's important and what isn't because I'd like to contribute as much as I could can to this board. And for me personally, that's the biggest challenge. Um, for the industry as a whole, again, it's it's got to be regulation and uh, dealing with that. And, and locally, it's rates. You know, we haven't raised our rates since uh, July of 2011, so we're we're going to pass a six years with no rate increase. We're probably looking at a rate increase fourth quarter 2017, first quarter 2018. So locally, that's probably our biggest challenge at the staff and the board level, is uh, getting that communication out and getting all that work done so we can justify whatever that rate increase needs to be. One of the nice things about being a member-regulated utility is that the people who are approving the rate increase are impacted by it because it's our own board members elected by our membership. So we, we know that when we go to our membership with a rate increase, we can we can do so and say we are absolutely certain this is this is the thing we have to do. Mm -hmm. It's not It's not padding a bottom line. There's not a profit necessarily there. It's um, paying the bills and keeping the lights on and and doing the right thing so and you get to be a part of that now Dave I've got to believe communication is going to be the key because that's been what six years mm -hmm. without a rate increase and um, that's pretty reasonable mm -hmm. so I like to believe communication is always the key but that could be my <laughs> own bias coming in there you mentioned the learning curve Dave and and one of the things that I think is really cool about the co-ops and Tony you can speak to this too is that our national organization really provides access to a a lot of training programs and, and um, resources for new directors, new employees, um, et cetera, that I'm sure you'll have the opportunity to take advantage of. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of board turnover in the state of Michigan, if not across the country. I know Homeworks Tri-County down in Portland, I believe they've had four or five new directors over the last two, three years. It just seems to be like the, the baby boomer, boomers are aging out of a lot of jobs in the country and a lot of volunteer work as well. So our National Association has always had a good slate of classes and certifications for directors to get them educated on all aspects of our business. And Dave referenced the training in, uh, at the Park Place, and that's, that training is put on by our National Association for, I think there's 15, 20 directors from across the state, new directors from across the state. 
And that's a lot of new people coming from only nine co-ops in the state of Michigan. Is that, a, is that strictly a demographic thing, or is it uh, where they voted out of office? Uh, it's pretty much a democratic thing, or a demographic thing, sorry. Like you said voted out of office, that's mm -hmm. also democratic. There's been a couple incumbents defeated, but typically, like, we haven't raised our rates in six years, and other co-ops, rates have been stable as well, so we see the incumbent get reelected very often. So it really... 99% of those changes are just aging out, moving on. Hmm. Well, and, and, you know, it's always great to get new ideas and, and fresh ideas, but because of the learning curve, there's also a lot of value in having that kind of institutional knowledge where you get an, a, a director who may be elected for several terms because there is so, well, first of all, because it's a co-op, we invest quite a bit into the educational process and training, but also it just takes so long to get up to speed on everything that's going on to really feel... Like, you know, you, you, you know, you can even really have a, a, well, it, it's an understanding the, of it. Yeah, it's the biggest problem with term limits in the state of Michigan. And I, I don't know what side you are on that argument, but the biggest problem with term limits is the re-education of mm. legislators. Mm -hmm. And we tend to not do that in the co-op industry. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. So... Uh, you both have opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in our community in different ways. So what do you think is important to our community when it comes to energy? Keeping the lights on. It's, if, it's amazing to me how, you know, 100 years ago, walking across a room and flicking a light switch, that was not a regular thing that people did. And now when we wake up in the morning, it's, it's accepted fact that things are going to work. And I think if it's not talked about and it's not in the news, I think that's the, that's the best thing that we can do is maintain the uh, dependability at a, at a fair cost. And that's got to be our mission. Yeah, and I think that's it. Uh, people want uh, their lights on and they want affordable rates. The, the third thing, which is sliding up really close behind those two, is where do we get our power? More and people... More and more people want to know what what generates your power. Is it coal? Is it wind? Is it nuclear? All of that. And so that's that's the question we the third question we get the most. Where does it come from? And and how to balance those three different pieces when sometimes they're in conflict with one another. So and we've talked about this so many different times, but if our portfolio uh, lends itself too much one way or another, it can start to have an adverse impact on rates and reliability and so mm -hmm. constantly kind of balancing all those things against one another it's, it's very complex yeah that'd be a good question for dave what are your thoughts on on a portfolio of power and, and power resources i mean i think i think in this day and age like you said uh, uh there's more and more interest in where we get our power from and i think we have to have definitely a portfolio of wind and solar and at least have access to those whether or not it's our main power source, that's yet to be determined. But uh, again, for me, it has to come down to economic sense and that it has to be economical and that it has to be dependable. So, and I'm actually really interested to hear your answer to this question, Dave. Given all that discussion, how do you perceive, um, what, or what do you perceive, or how would you characterize Cherryland's reputation in the community as, as far as how, we, how good of a job, or poor of a job, I suppose, we do of keeping the lights on, rates, um, power supply, those things? In Holiday Hills, it's very good. 
the only time I hear anything and it's just scuttlebutt because we have neighborhood parties and things like that or when they we have a, a power line going through different subdivisions and there's some tree trimming going on periodically and we get some complaints about that um, oh they took down this big tree that they thought was on their property but it wasn't and I think that's got to be one of the the only complaint I've heard and I think most people understand that living in northern Michigan with the extremes of Mother Nature, that we're going to have power outages here and there with all the ice buildup and, and that sort of thing with the winds that we get off the lake. And I think that uh, most people are pretty understanding. Of course, you're always going to, and as you probably already know, you're going to get those individuals that are going to complain about everything, no. you know, all the I time. I don't believe we have any of those. <laughs> Not Cherryland members. So. But I think overall the reputation is very good, especially um, some of the outreach, big brothers, big sisters. Um, believe it or not, when I think of Cherryland, I kind of think of that in the background. It's It, it does have an impact. Uh, in a, a different conversation, you mentioned you were part of the Home Association over at Holiday mm -hmm. Hills. What's your role there, and what other community activities do you have? I am in charge of the roads. We have private roads. And so our, in the winter, I get a lot of calls on mailboxes being wiped out by the plow and they didn't plow enough and that sort of thing. So I'm used to taking the complaints. And again, it comes down to, hey, we live in northern Michigan. A lot of weather is unpredictable. And so I'm, I'm used to handling those pretty well. Um, I'm involved in a couple things. Uh, single moms, my wife and I kind of latched on to that. Uh, charitable organization. It's an organization in town where uh, there's a lot of uh, single moms that are struggling with everyday life and how to even balance a checkbook or get through their day or to buy groceries. And my job with them is to go over and fix little things around the house, uh, fix a toilet. Um, I've done that. Start a lawnmower. And so we've become very active in that and that's been very fulfilling. Uh, there are 700 single moms that they're serving and it's amazing um it's heartbreaking had um, for the kids sake but on the other hand you know they have a place to go when they need help and it's a no it's, it's a tough love the director there is hey you got yourself into this this is how we're going to get out of it so they have classes and try to get these mothers back up on their feet and um, do that i'm also on the uh, NMC Advisory Committee um, for their, they have a, in, in their business and finance uh, section over there, uh, one of the instructors there asked me to serve on this board and we bring real world into the classroom and they ask us what should we be teaching our students in regards to finance and investments rather than just pulling it out of a book. So I sit on that board and we meet quarterly to go over what what kinds of things they should be teaching that will apply to real, real world applications. And, so. and did you say you taught as an adjunct at NMC as well? My, did you say you yes. taught at the college too? I was, uh, actually I was at Davenport University okay. for 10 years at the university center. And I taught economics and corporate finance and personal investing and a couple MBA classes as well. So. 
Well, and, and you mentioned Big Brothers Big Sisters. One of the kind of core values of the co-op is commitment to the community, and that manifests itself in lots of different ways, not just mm-hmm. keeping the lights on. And I think um, you see that across all layers of our organization, whether it's our board members, our staff, um, and, and even our members. So it's it's cool thinking about, I, I can't even begin to conceptualize the, the impact that that kind of community involvement has. So we love love having more people who are committed to the community on the board. Well, we don't have much more time left. Tony, did you have any other questions before we slide into co-op fund facts? Well, you told everybody you're in the financial services business. What is your forecast for the market for the next year? <laughs> <laughs> they got to be wondering. My crystal ball is no better than anybody else's. Uh, I will say this, the new administration has made a lot of promises, and uh, they have to fulfill a lot of those in order for the market to move on, in my opinion. But uh, we'll see what happens. We'll, we will revisit this next year, right? So. We'll see. That's, it's just a time of uncertainty. Can I say one thing? Uh, one of the things I'm really amazed at, and I'm still amazed at it, when I attended the company Christmas party and the, the company training day on Martin Luther King Day, and I was talking to Tom Van Pelt, another board member, about it, how very few employees you have for the size of the, the co-op. And he said, Cherryland has one of the lowest, you know, revenue per employee. And I found that to be very impressive. That means you're operating very efficiently. And I'm just shocked that there's only 55 employees or something like that. So Yeah, we're usually one or two in the nation as far as uh, employee meters per employee is a measure. You'll see 140 some measures hmm. as we go through the year. But the key, one of the key ones, the one that we're most proud of, is meters per employee. We're over 600 meters, wow. and the national average is closer to 350, 400. We we do use a, a contractors from time to time, mm-hmm. so you, you got to take that into consideration. But we get a lot done with a few amount of people. We wear a lot of hats too, you know. So we have. And I mean, again, here's another bias, but we've got great employees here that work hard and get a lot of stuff done very efficiently. Yeah, yeah. we're very blessed to have a good people getting a lot of good stuff done. And, but we, we check ourselves against other co-ops in the country quite often because we know we can always get better. Yep, absolutely. So on that note, um, first of all, let me say, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great, and I hope it's been helpful to our membership. I, I, I want to reiterate to our listeners, it's so important that our members know who our board members are and that they get to know them because that's how they, you're their access into the organization. So if they have feedback, you're the person, clearly they can always contact us, but you're their representative. And so they should always feel comfortable contacting you. Um, All of our board members' contact information is available on our website. We also do quarterly input sessions, which are on our, would be on our website, in our magazine, and on our Facebook page if you want to know when they are and clearly annual meeting and if they see our board members in the community. So I just um, encourage our listeners to keep that in mind. So to end us here today, co-op fun facts. Tony, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Volvo Car Corporation uh, is going to build a three and a half million million square foot facility in South Carolina. They're going to spend $500 million and they're going to produce the S60 sedan entirely made in the United States. The, the first sedan will roll off the line in 2018, and that facility, that half-a-billion-dollar facility, is going to be served by an electric co-op in South Carolina that is smaller than Cherryland even. 
and that that facility will create 2,000 jobs over the next 10 years in South Carolina. So, so if anyone's out there looking to put the next Volvo, we're ready. Yep. Yeah, bring it to Traverse City. Co-op, co-op made. <laughs> That's awesome. Dave? No fun fact? That's okay. I, I have a fun fact. Uh, in December, Cherryland retired $3 million in capital credits. Most of you probably already know that. But across the country, America's 900-plus electric cooperatives retired approximately $800 million in capital credits. So that's, that's Economic Impact 101 with your co-ops, making cars and returning money to the membership. There we go. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you.